Welcome to another episode of Clot Conversations from Thrombosis Canada. I'm David Airdrie, Executive Director. I'm Jamil Abdul Rahman. I'm a hematologist, specialization in thrombosis. Uh, Toronto General Hospital, uh, and today I'm at ISTH. And we're here to provide you with updates on diagnosis and management of thrombosis, featuring interviews and with authors of recent research publications and highlights of education programs from Thrombosis Canada. Today's episode is from ISTH 2023. Uh, we're here with Manel Huroy. She's a incoming R3 for Medicine, University of Toronto, and she did a, a poster presentation uh, at ISTH on the use of DOAX in bariatric surgery. Can you tell us about the use of DOAX post-bariatric surgery? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we know that DOAX have become first-line treatment for VTE as well as non-valvular AFib. However, uh, in patients who have gastrointestinal surgeries like bariatric surgery, um, it's unclear if these DOAX are being absorbed effectively. Um, and there's limited data to, su- to, to suggest that, uh, that they are, in fact, effective. Great. Okay. And if anyone wants to look it up, can you give us the full title of your study? Yeah, so it's the impact of gastrointestinal surgeries on peak plasma anti-10A direct oral anticoagulant levels. And the session uh, number is PB0459. Okay, perfect. Okay, so tell us about your study. So we conducted a a single-center retrospective cohort review uh, comparing peak plasma anti-10A DOAC levels in patients who underwent GI surgeries. Um, uh, So that included any type of removal or rearrangement of the proximal GI uh, GI tract. Um, And we looked and compared it to expected levels from pharmacokinetic studies. Um, So our primary outcome was looking at the proportion of patients who had uh, uh, their uh, their PPDL, uh, their peak plasma DOAC level uh, within the range. And then our secondary outcomes were to uh, look at uh, rates of recurrent VTE, arterial thrombus, major bleeding, and all-cause mortality. Okay, interesting. And what did you guys find? So we found that in a population, we had 61 patients um, who sort of met our inclusion criteria. We have met. We found that 72% of them had uh, peak plasma DOAC levels that were within the expected range, of which 85% of them uh, were on apixaban and 50% were on rivaroxaban. Overall, the rates of uh, VTE, arterial thrombus, major bleeding, and uh, were all relatively low. Um, however, all-cause mortality was a little bit higher, uh, specifically the... Um, the rates with all-cause mortality was 3.63 per 100-person years. Neat. Okay, so what should we take away from that? What are the lessons learned? So the lessons from this project uh, says that, you know, although we know that 70% met the sort of expected range, it's unclear whether that actually has any general meaning, given that the rates of complications uh, were relatively low. Um, We did find that patients on apixaban were twice as often in range, uh, were in the range compared to rivaroxaban. And overall, the rates of recurrent VTE, arterial thrombus, and major bleeding were low. The rates of of, uh, all-cause mortality was a little bit higher. And I think that might be driven by uh, the large proportion of our uh, our cohort who had uh, an underlying malignancy. So it sounds like we need more data. We need more data. Yes. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much. No problem. Thank you. All right. And we also have Adam Silliman. He's a fellow thrombosis, sorry, fellow hematology, University of Toronto. Uh, and you did a project looking at thrombosis in primary CNS lymphoma. 
Yes, that's correct. Thank you so much for having me to talk about this. It's really exciting. So uh, we did a project. This was in collaboration with Rachel Wine, one of the med students, Mark Carrier and Lisa Hicks, who's in Toronto as well, too. And we it was called the, the Risk of Venous Thromboembolism in Primary CNS Lymphoma Systematic Review. It's the uh, poster board PB0947. And it, it came from actually the fact that when we looked at patients who had primary CNS lymphoma treated with Matrix, a, a chemoimmunotherapy regimen uh, in Toronto, this is published in Hemo recently, the rate of thrombosis was higher than we expected at around 16%. Um, and so we wanted to look at this kind of from a systematic review perspective to really see if this is a true effect that we're finding. Hmm. So yeah, tell us about the study. Yeah. So the one of the challenges of looking at a rare disease as primary CNS lymphoma is quite rare is that the studies that we have to include are, are a little bit uh, heterogeneous, let's say to say the least. So we did do a systematic review and we did include uh, retrospective studies, prospective studies, as well as randomized controlled trials. And after full screening, we actually ended up having 46 studies that met inclusion criteria for primary CNS lymphoma and VTE risk. And so this encompassed about 3,600 patients or so. And the VTE incidence, and we calculated this using a random effects model, was about 11% with a confidence interval range of 9 to 14%. So we are seeing a bit of a high rate um, of VTE that we expected there. One of the big complications and, of course, challenges, especially in patients who are going to be treated, is the risk of bleeding. And so we really really did want to try and quantify that. However, out of those 46 studies, only 12 actually reported on any sort of bleeding events. So because of that, when we just look at absolute numbers, it's close to 8% or so, the range that, that we're seeing there. But it is really hard to get a good estimate of bleeding. Um, but, you know, we are seeing a, a fairly high rate of thrombosis and potentially a high rate of bleeding as well, too. Interesting. So what are the takeaway points here? Yeah, the takeaway points are that, especially when studying rare diseases, we do think that large registry data is needed. So that's hopefully a next step that we'll be able to take forward with this project is to look at it even using kind of Ontario data that we might have available. And that, you know, if we are seeing this high of a rate of thrombosis, it may be worth considering thromboprophylaxis in this patient. But until we, we really understand the bleeding risk, we wouldn't recommend that routinely at this time. So more data is really needed. Interesting. Thanks so much. Great. And lastly, we have Ismail Raslan. He's fellow thrombose hemostasis, University of Toronto. And Ismail, you did a project looking at uh, post-CTEF, sorry, P, sorry, CTEF post-PEA anticoagulation. Tell us about that. So, um, as you know, and many listeners will probably know that the data in the in the population of patients who have chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, or CTEF for short, is quite limited. Um, and they have a poor prognosis. And so, um, the best thing you can do is to optimize their anticoagulation if you can. And unfortunately, um, data is lacking both in the pre-pulmonary endarterectomy and post-pulmonary endarterectomy setting, which offers these patients their best chance of survival and prognosis. So um, the data in the post-pulmonary endarterectomy setting has been conflicting, although it seems that the higher quality retrospective studies have uh, shown a higher rate of VTE recurrence when patients are treated with warfarin compared to DOEX. Um, and so um, given that we, um, you know, I'm training at a pulmonary endarterectomy setting in a, a CTEF center, uh, we wanted to look at our cohort and to see um, if that holds true um, in our population as well. Interesting. And so what was the name of the study? So the name was uh, anticoagulation post-pulmonary uh, endarterectomy uh, for patients with chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, a retrospective cohort study. Perfect. And if people want to look it up, do you know the name of the... Um, it was in oral communication session one, uh, so OC 1.05, the fifth presentation. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So tell us about the study. So it was a retrospective single-center cohort study. Um, 
um, and included all patients who underwent a pulmonary endotrectomy from Jan 2005 until February 2022. Um, and uh, we compared patients who received vitamin K antagonists or warfarin to patients who received DOAX with regards to rates of recurrent VTE, composite major bleeding, clinically relevant non-major bleeding, um, um, both those variables alone, overall survival, and the need to initiate targeted pulmonary hypertension therapy, which served as a surrogate for recurrence of pulmonary hypertension both post-surgery. Uh, post, uh, Interesting. So what are the takeaway points here? So uh, um, we found a statistically significant higher rate of recurrence uh, uh, in patients who were treated with warfarin compared to those treated with DOAC. The rate ratio was 2.62. The confidence interval was 1.05 to... Sorry, so higher risk of recurrence on DOACs compared to warfarin. Is that right? DOAC. On DOAX compared to Orphan, sorry, yes, um, with a rate ratio of 2.62 and the, ni and the 95 confidence interval of 1.06 uh, to 6.5, um, which is very similar to the findings of the uh, Bunn-Clark study, which was uh, in the, published in 2020 in the GTH um, at the NHS. Um, they also found the same findings we did. There was no differences in safety outcomes, death, or the need to um, initiate uh, targeted pulmonary hypertension that's therapy. And that's in your study as well as the Bunn-Clark study. Okay, okay. Okay. So what are the takeaway points here? I think the main takeaway is to acknowledge how uh, or realize that the data is still limited even without retrospective analysis. Um, I hope that this adds to uh, the push for us to do prospective studies in this area. Um, the best thing we can do really for our patients is to optimize anticoagulation. So I would avoid dose reduction um, for long-term management. Look for antiphospholipid antibodies uh, because that could change your management um, and you know uh, um, understand that there's limitations to the retrospective uh, data and hopefully we can move for the prospective studies. All right, perfect. Well, thanks so much for your time and thank you. Thank you guys as well. Thank you for listening to Clock Conversations from Thrombosis Canada. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions on the podcast. If you have any recommendations for future podcasts, please send them to us at info at thrombosiscanada.ca and please subscribe so that you are notified about the release of new episodes. Don't forget to check out our website for education programs, clinical tools, and guides. Also, please consider donating to Thrombosis Canada to support our ongoing efforts to reduce morbidity and mortality due to thrombosis. This is David Airdrie from ISTH in Montreal.